Let us review. You have come to me because your troubles are many and the causes of them are few. For the better part of the season, your crops have yielded next to nothing. Though the weather was mild and the rain plentiful, your harvest was still lacking. Your plants have turned brown and twisted into knots, looking almost scorched with an angry black blight. The very earth beneath them crumbles and emits a foul odor. Your cattle, once robust, have now withered away, becoming frail and skittish and behaving in a most unusual manner. They will not eat or drink, though nothing about them is otherwise unhealthy. They gather in a tight herd to stare off into the space at the edge of their pasture, lowing rhythmically, the sound picking up speed and volume as the heat of the day approaches, then stopping all at once, as though it had never started in the first place. Several of them have run at an alarming speed into the barn wall, breaking their own necks upon impact. The bangs reverberated in the early morning silence. There has been no milk to speak of, and the calves that came in the spring have all perished. Your wife, once vibrant and lovely, has become sallow and haunted. You awoke in the middle of the night to find her standing at the foot of your marital bed, her nightdress and long hair soaking wet, the dark water forming a pool beneath her. Though she appeared to still be asleep, she shivered and laughed to herself. When you turned on the lights, you discovered the liquid was not just water, but also fresh, still warm blood. Her left hand was clamped into a fist around a large and heavy cleaver, and it ran with dark fluid, causing ominous stains in its wake. You shook her awake, and she had no idea how she had entered such a state. Terrified and taking in her surroundings, she took to the bed and screamed in such a way that it pierced your every molecule with the sensation of electrical currents. You grabbed your flashlight and followed the trail of dark red drops and smears down the stairs, through the kitchen, and out into the henhouse. As you opened the door, you noticed a strange quiet. Shining your light into the small shack, you saw only carnage. Every single hen lie dead in a tangle of feathers and gore. Your wife remained in that bed for an entire week, during which time she would not eat, and only took occasional broth from a spoon. She still will not speak, and shakes violently when she isn't sleeping. Twice more you have caught her at midnight standing at the foot of your bed, laughing at something you cannot see. Occasionally you will see a dark shadow in the hayloft. It creeps around slowly, hissing like a gas leak until it senses you, and then it disappears like smoke in a draft. All the barn cats have gone. They stay at the edge of your property, refusing to set foot on its haunted soil. You have tried all rational cures, and now you have come to me. You want to know what has brought such terrible unrest to your little farm, and how you can make it stop. This is a hex, and it is as dark, deep, and cold as the bottom of a well. The only way out of it will be a deed even darker. Are you prepared to do the unspeakable? How far will you go to save what is rightfully yours? Are you willing to wear the darkness like a cloak for the rest of your life in the shadows of acts you have committed? I guarantee that whatever your answer, however sure you are, however far you think you can go, you will not be prepared for what is next. But I need your assurance that no matter the horror, no matter the violence, no matter the suffering you behold, you will keep going until the deed is done. Do I have your word? All right then, let us proceed. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we, we would, would be, be dead.
old-timey hexes. Ooh. <laughs> hey, Leslie. Hey, Holly. Hey, fiends. Well, 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 we have a Leslie episode for you guys this week. <gasps> what? <laughs> Surprise! Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Let me get things together. I'll be right back. Oh, man. Are you ready? I'm ready. What if, what if I just surprised you? Yeah. I was like, it's all you. Go. <laughs> okay. Uh... <laughs> So, yeah, this isn't my case, but I wrote the monologue, so I'm so interested to see if it fits in with the case. I gave Holly some ideas, and then I was like, you can do this. (laughs) Did it work? I hope it did. Yeah, it did. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a little bit more sinister. Well, that was the goal. Yeah, for sure. It was great. I I just kept thinking of, like, The Witch, the movie, like, the whole time I was doing this episode. Those are the vibes we're going for. (laughs) Perfect. Then I got it for you. I'm so happy. Uh, So... Allow me to explain. This is a little bit of a departure for us because as many of you know, Pod Dog passed away early Thursday morning. He was my loyal companion for 16 years and his sudden passing kind of halted me right in my tracks. But Leslie, being the very best partner, cousin, and friend in the whole world, stepped right up and covered a real banger of a spooky case for us this week. So next week, we will have our previously scheduled coverage of Gabby Petito's disappearance and murder. Well, you know, as much of it as we can so mm-hmm. far. We've done this with the caveat that this is a part one, mm-hmm. part two to come when there is more of an explanation. We also will have some interviews with mental health experts. I think we're trying to get uh, some law enforcement to come mm-hmm. on the show or at least to talk to us, and then we can tell you what they had to say. And we're also going to talk about the other murdered and missing campers in the Tetons from okay. that same point in time. So That's we cover good. everybody. So, guys, hang on tight for all of that and really enjoy this week's spooky, scary story. Mm. So, Leslie, what are you talking about this week? What is the title? What is the subject? Um, So, this is the Hex House Murders or Hex Hollow Murders. Oh, I love Hex Hollow. Yeah, I know. I like the hollow. Nice. Mm -hmm. I want a house that I can call a hollow. You might. You might get one. Oh, maybe. (gasps) That might be the name. The Holly Hollow? No. Just the hollow. We'll find. Yes. That's its name. <laughs> That's its name. My, my future home. So anyway, it's funny that you should mention hexes because this mm. week I've really, I really haven't felt like myself. Yeah. You know, I've been having like vivid nightmares and wandering Ooh. out of my house in the dead of the mm-hmm, night, mm-hmm. you know, standing creepily over my husband. Oh, that's not good. Projectile vomiting into the abyss. Oh, no. Looking like generally sweaty and pale. Oh, geez. How about you? Yeah, girl. Is that Same. happening in your house too? Yeah, it's it's a uh, it's been rough. <laughs> it's been a time. People are concerned. Yeah, I've I've seen every doctor. I've seen every shrink. I've seen no solution. No right? solution. Well, you know what? I think this could be a hex after all. Oh no! Yeah. And despite what this week's story might say, I know full well that there is only one way to get rid of a pesky hex. Oh, tell me. And that is to bathe in copious amounts of liberally applied. Validation. Oh, gosh. I mm-hmm. do love validation. It's really nice. And lucky for us, our fiends can help us with that. Oh. Isn't that great? Okay. That's right. If you want to save us from certain hexy death, you can hop on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It really is the only way to move this podcast forward and prevent unspeakable deeds. Yes. So. I love a community effort. Right. So, like, no pressure. But if you don't, people could die. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we could be terrifying specters. Are we allowed to say that? I mean, people could (laughs) die anywhere at any time for any reason. It's just a fact of life, people. It it is. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not saying we're doing anything (laughs) awful ever. Anyway, I know you guys want to do both of those things. I just know it. You're good people. Mm -hmm. And if you want even more, we would be dead in your life. You can support us on Patreon, where for just a little monthly donation, you will not only keep us going, but also gain access to our weekly video after show, Host Mortem, our patrons-only podcast, 30-minute horror movies, which was also delayed a little bit this week, but it's going to happen. I'm so ready. Oh, yeah. You're prepped. I am prepped, ready to go. We will be doing the second Twilight movie. Yes. So if you guys liked the first one, come on over, be a patron. (laughs) You can hear the second one. Such That's a teaser. Not, and there is a difference between liking the first movie and liking our 30-minute horror. Oh, I truly meant our 30-minute yeah. horror recap. You know, just making sure. I, if you liked both, great. Yeah, I do not mean you have to like <laughs> yeah. the movie because then I don't know that I would fall into that category. <laughs> As a patron, you will also get a special little gift from us, extra mini-sodes, an on-air toast dedicated just to you, and more. 
And if all of that is a little much for you, you can simply share anything on our social media feed to your social media feed, post about your favorite episode, let us know when you're listening, tell your friend, tell your neighbor, tell a practicing witch. Because after this week's case, we're all going to be here for any good magical juju they can spare. Then your friends and glorious witch of your choosing, what would their name be? Ooh. <laughs> just, just ask. <laughs> as the forces within you, I the know. naming forces, it's you have one and I you're know, laughing at be, it. I know. Um, just say it. <laughs> the, <laughs> She's holding out, you guys. She doesn't want to say it because she thinks it's silly, I can tell. The Swamp Witch of Brewhouse. Oh. That's their name. Guys, there's been so many spoiler alerts for possible life updates for me this week. (laughs) Nothing concrete yet. Anyway, tell them, and then your friends and this glorious swamp witch can become fiends, and we can all hang out together. I want to hang out with all of those people. I know. Man. I hope it's like the swamp thing, because he was cool. He's a nice guy. Yeah, man. Very The weight of water type situation or whatever that movie was where Doug Jones swims around and has sex with um, a human. Yes. Good times. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This is also a Doug Jones fan account because I think we've talked about him like five times. (laughs) He's the best. I love him. (laughs) Uh, And also don't forget to keep your eye out for VIP passes to our Mischief Night show at Cape May Brewing Company. There will be music, a costume contest, our live show, delicious beer, and more fun than you can shake a stick at. But like, like don't. Go around shaking sticks because someone could lose an eye. Mm-hmm. Yeah, safety mm-hmm. first, you guys. All right, that's uh, that's all I have this week. Okay. So, Leslie, do you have anything else to add before you kick things off? Um, no. All right, then no. do the honors. On with the show. By 1900, America had established itself as a world power. The West was won, the continent was settled from coast to coast, The Indian Wars had come to a close, and American Indians were on reservations and the buffalo were gone. Homestead, I know. Buffalo. Homesteading and the introduction of barbed wire in 1874 had brought an end to the open range. The McCormick Reaper had made large-scale farming profitable, and in 1900, the U.S. was by far the world's largest agricultural producer. I thought you meant like a (laughs) scary (laughs) Grim Reaper. No. (laughs) You said the McCormick Reaper, and I went, what is that? Is that something I didn't know about? That should have been my witch. Yeah, the McCormick (laughs) Reaper. Reaper, That's good. (laughs) Farming tool, right? That's a farming tool. Cool, cool, cool. I thought it was like a terrifying specter. No. (laughs) <laughs> great it's like the automatic like not automatic but it's like the big one yes that, yeah. I, it, that that dawned on me after I was thinking of like a scream costume type yeah. person so you got there mm-hmm. in 1859 the world's first oil well had been drilled in Titusville Pennsylvania by 1900 major oil fields were being tapped in Kansas Illinois Louisiana Oklahoma and Texas the supply of American oil seemed limitless Ugh. In the 1880s, Andrew Carnegie had constructed the world's largest steel mill in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And by 1900, the United States was the largest steel producer in the world, turning out 10 million tons a year. God, we're nailing it. I know. We're just killing it at this time. By 1900, telephones were being widely used. Cities were being electrified. Moving pictures were a curiosity. The invention of the radio and the Wright Brothers flying machine weren't far behind. Cities were growing, skyscrapers were being built, and my favorite architect, Frank Lloyd Wright, was beginning his career in Chicago. So do you know how Alexander Graham Bell wanted people to answer a phone? He did not want us to say hello. Oh, I forget, but tell me. He wanted to say, ahoy, ahoy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which is, I wish everyone would make the switch. Oh, let's just do it. If you answer your phone, do not say hello. Just say, ahoy, ahoy. Well, it's like in Japan, it's moshi moshi. Cute. Yeah. Way cuter. And that's how you say hello, but that's the only, I think that's the only time you say hello really? on the phone. Is I don't know much about Japanese culture, yeah. so I can't back any of that up, but I do know. Yeah, tell me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that you only say mushi mushi when you answer the phone. Huh. Mm-hmm. We'll start saying ahoy ahoy. Ahoy ahoy. Yeah, so All much right. better, right? Way jauntier than hello. Anyway. What were we thinking? The American dream was alive and well, especially in Pennsylvania, where the farmland was vast and the potential for prosperity was high. See, we still get, like, Leslie fun facts. Love it. I'm so happy. And such was the case for Pennsylvania Dutch country, which is located in southeastern Pennsylvania. 
The Pennsylvania Dutch are not Dutch, but are descendants of early German-speaking immigrants who arrived in Pennsylvania in the 1700s and 1800s to escape religious persecution in Europe. And these are also not Amish folks, yes? Well, There's they a difference? Are, no, they, they are. Like, they okay. encompass it. Okay. Mm-hmm. They were made up of German Reformed, Mennonite, Lutheran, Moravian, and other religious groups. Catholics would soon settle around the area once they opened up, like, Jesuit missions nearby. The word Dutch comes from the word Deutsch, which means German. The 1920s only saw even more growth in the country and in Pennsylvania. Cities were growing rapidly, the Great Depression had not yet occurred, the stock market was at its highest, and farmers were prospering. But while the urban areas were modernizing, many of the rural areas, like Pennsylvania Dutch country, German traditions had survived, and the idea of superstitions, folk medicine, powwowing, and hexes were as strong as ever. To be clear, medical doctors, vets, and psychologists were in the area and were utilized, but many families still liked to consult with their local faith healers in their town, especially when doctors couldn't find anything wrong with them or their wildlife. Faith healers, also known as powwowers, were Christian-based practitioners, and the powers came straight from God. That word just feels so co-opted from, like, indigenous culture, though. That's- yes. Well, it's from there, so we did steal it from them, but it was like the idea it—well, I'm going to go into it. Oh, okay. Powwowing includes a wide range of healing rituals used primarily for treating ailments in humans and livestock, as well as securing physical and spiritual protection and good luck in everyday affairs. Many see it as active prayer, but some view it as magic. Although the word powwow is Native American, these ritual traditions are of European origin and were brought to colonial Pennsylvania when the Germans migrated there. So the terminology for a faith healer varies by region, but in York County, Pennsylvania, where our story takes place today, they call them powwowers. And again, it's probably because they were around the Indians and they called their get-togethers powwows and it was... We're just going to steal their cool stuff and mm-hmm. then kill them. Let's see how it goes. Nelson Raymeyer was a man who came from a long line of faith healing and was taught this art at a young age. He had grown quite a name for himself and his community as a powerful powwower, and many would choose to see him as their practitioner over a medical practitioner. A little history on Nelson and his family. In 1841, Henry and Wilhelmina Raymeyer migrated from Germany to Pennsylvania. A few years later, Henry's two brothers joined them, The three brothers pooled their money together and bought 96 acres in what is today North Hopewell Township, Pennsylvania, and called it Ray Myers Hollow. They became a large family and had several homes built per family. So this is like an area you can still see today. Most Hmm. of those houses are still standing. Some are like broken down, but you could do like little tours over there. I'm going to do a tour. We're not that far from there. Mm Mm-mm. Nelson was born to Henry Ray Meyer and Rachel McCant. I don't know what happened to Wilhelmina. (laughs) Oh, shit. Yeah. She disappeared real (laughs) fast. And (laughs) so he was born in October 1868. Like his parents, he was a farmer and raised potatoes on his farm. Some in the town found him weird, but only because he liked to stay on his farm and keep to himself. He was also very tall, at least six feet and about 200 pounds. And this was like very tall for that time. It's like a bleak existence. Yeah. I just grew a potato. Yeah. (laughs) He just, he was like an introvert. And very tall, never yeah. leave house. <laughs> and from the photos and firsthand accounts, he was also pretty good looking. All right, Nelson. Mm-hmm. Though he was a bit of a hermit, Nelson did like helping his community, and he usually helped them by powwowing. When a friend asks for help, you help him. <laughs> yeah. At 28, Nelson married 18-year-old Alice, and they had two daughters, Edna and Beatrice. Alice soon grew tired and frustrated living with Nelson. Mm. She was always threatening to leave if he didn't hang up the powwowing practice. She thought it was all a bunch of bullshit. Alice is not having it. She's not having it. There were people coming to their home at all hours of the day and night looking for powwowing services. But regardless of the fear that his wife may leave him, Nelson never said no to someone who showed up on his doorstep. I imagine that's annoying, though. People all day and night being like, can you do some weird shit Mm -hmm. to fix my, like, chickens? Yeah, they would say, like, the family that's alive today would, the way they tell it is, like, he'd have people lined up outside the door all day waiting for him. I feel like if you're not him and if you're not invested in that, that's fucking annoying. I know. I I can see that. And that was the hard thing at this point in time because 
you know, these German traditions were still alive and strong in this area. But mm-hmm. there were other people that were kind of, you know, especially out. She was younger than him, too. She right. was kind of seeing the outside world a bit more and might have just been like, what? It, this is just a folkish. We we need to get past this. She's wanted some science. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel you, Alice. I get it. In the winter of 1901, 33-year-old Nelson was visited by Emanuel Blymeyer and his son, John Blymeyer. John was five years old and sick. Nelson was curious at their arrival because the Blymeyers come from at least three generations of trusted powwowers, which would one day make John the fourth generation. Surely, Emmanuel had the tools to heal their son, so why did he look so desperate standing outside Nelson's house? It turns out Emmanuel had tried everything to cure his son on what he believed to be apnema, or take off a wasting away disease. Something that we would call now as like malnutrition, basically. Okay. Yeah. Stop eating just potatoes. Yeah. Maybe you'll shape up. And he might have had a virus or something, just, but yeah. He just looked malnourished at this point. You look bad. (laughs) John had dropped a lot of weight, basically skin and bones at this point. After everything his father tried failed, Emmanuel came to the logical conclusion that his son had been hexed. Obviously. And in order to save his son, he would need to get rid of a hex. Removing the hex would require help from someone more powerful and experienced than he was. There were other more powerful powwowers in the area, ones who dabbled on the dark edges of the practice, but Emmanuel, like many others, trusted Nelson. So Nelson let him in and assess the boy. Once he made his assessment, Nelson wrote up a prescription. He told Emmanuel to collect John's urine in a jar before sunrise, then boil an egg in the urine. Mm. They were to take a needle and punch three small holes in the egg and then leave it on an anthill. John would be cured when the ants ate the egg and the hex would be gone. Uh, So it had to eat the, like, the uh, shell, too. Probably smelled really good. And guess what? What? It worked. What? No, it didn't. It did. John's weight loss stopped. He was feeling and looking healthier. It was great. Does that take, like, a long fucking time to do when he just got better? (laughs) It does don't dissolve. (laughs) Right. So they had to wait for for the ants to eat. All of it, even the eggshells included, somehow. That's a long ass I know. time. And it and every account says, and then by the following spring, mm-hmm. so I don't even know when he entered this house. It could have been like four months later. You just hope a coyote carries that shit off so you can be done mm-hmm. with it. As the years continued, John started practicing powwowing, probably because his father was passing on his traditions, but I can't help but imagine he was also inspired by Nelson. At the age of seven, John performed his first healing charm, curing his grandfather, who was having trouble urinating. There's a lot of pee in this story. Jesus. <laughs> At 10, John got a job on Nelson's potato farm, and I can only assume Nelson would help him would help aid him in his career as a faith healer. Powwowing honestly seemed to be the only thing that John was good at. Not bleak potato farming. Yeah. At this point in John's life, it was clear he wasn't the brightest bulb. Oh, no. Since birth, his <sighs> development seemed slower than that of his peers. Mm. He wasn't very smart. His IQ, which was tested, was below average. He had a dull personality, and some accounts say he was often very twitchy and nervous. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> so Dull and twitchy. That's yeah. a weird combination. I know. Ooh, I don't like it much. Mm. So when the people around him began to praise him for his healing abilities, he just, like, ran with it. He was like, okay. Yeah, yeah, I'm great at that. Yeah, cool, cool. At age 13, John moved to York, Pennsylvania and got a job at a cigar factory because, like, now he's an adult. Yeah, so cigars. Yep. Got it. While he still tried practicing powwowing. One of his coworkers, Albert Wagner, had a wheel in the eye, which is, like, a dermal edema or when there's fluid collection in the, like, uh, in the layer of the skin below the surface. I think we'd call it like a well or hive. Like it would just. Under his eye? Or yeah, like it was like under. Oh, it was okay. like under. So like, yeah. They call it a wheel in the eye. Like you can W-H-E-A-L in the eye. And mm-hmm. if you look that up, it'll it'll pop up with these oh. like powwowing books. Probably and don't want to see that. Charms. Sounds gross. Just like a little, just looks like a bump. Okay, so it's not. Yeah. Okay. Like edema. It's just like a swelling, like fluid underneath. Like If it's not too gross, we'll put it in the photo suite yeah. so you guys can tell what it looks like. <laughs> But Albert, after hearing all about John's abilities, decided to see if John could heal him. So John instructed Albert to bring a dirty supper plate to work with him the next day. (sighs) No. Which Albert did. 
John took the dirty side of the plate, placed it against his eye, recited a healing charm, and then threw the plate to the floor, breaking it. Cool. John gave the sign of the cross three times over Albert's infected eye. Because, again, remember, this is all through, like, Christianity. Of course. And said he would be better the next day. And guess what? What? He was. Get out of here. Amazing. (laughs) Here's this dirty old food plate. Yeah. Now your eye's good. I, like, I want to know what happened. Like, either it just, like, because they just go away. Mm -hmm. It just takes time. Or he, like, like, pushed it out somehow, like, accidentally. Or, like, when he broke, I don't know. I don't know what he did. (laughs) (laughs) A few more years went by. John still worked at the cigar factory. He was living on his own, moving from room to room, and not really making much for himself. Powell wasn't a lucrative career for him, mostly because he never charged anyone for his services. Oh, come on. But would accept voluntary offerings. But if he was just like, I can do this for free, they'd be like, great. Here's we'll a loaf of bread. You, yeah, we cooked you dinner. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Doesn't pay rent, but I'll take it, Sandy. All God right. damn it. Jesus. Get your wheelie <laughs> eye out of here. <laughs> That's just what he did when they walked away yeah. after not paying. Hex. <laughs> I'm going to say that all the time now. In the summer of 1912, John was leaving work. It was a very hot day, and outside the factory, someone yelled, Mad dog! <laughs> <laughs> Like you do. Like you do. There was a black collie darting toward the crowd of people on the street, foaming at the mouth. Mm. Clearly had rabies. Everyone was terrified. Some of John's co-workers started to run back towards the factory doors, but John walked right up to the collie. Everyone on the street watched in fear as John spoke an incantation and waved the sign of the cross over the collie's head. The dog stopped foaming at the mouth and settled down. Its rabies was gone. No, it was not. It was. This is this is a documented story. Then that dog did not have rabies. The dog licked John's hand and followed him down the street. And now John has rabies. <laughs> no one would question his powers again. Um, I just think it was like his pet. That dog that walked into the woods and died a minute later yeah. because rabies is a real weird temperamental thing. No, it was probably his pet dog that just like got out and he was like, oh shit. Come here, come here, come here. Yeah. <laughs> it's fun, we got the bell. <laughs> It wasn't long after that John fell on hard times. Besides having very little money, he was losing weight rapidly again. Oh, no. He could not eat, he could not sleep, and he could not work his powwow magic. Well, listen, he wasn't making any money with which you would buy food, so. Well, he was working at the cigar shop this whole time. all right. But he could have been, like, living in a McMansion (laughs) if he was charging for both. (laughs) Come on, man. I know. Hustle. After running through every charm he knew— John had no choice but to believe he had been hexed. God damn it. Hex. Probably by a jealous powwower. Probably. But until John could figure out who would want to hex him, he wouldn't be able to lift this curse. So in 1913, at the age of 18, John decided he would need to leave the cigar factory and devote his time and energy into finding his hexer. Oh, my God. So leave the job that's making you the money mm-hmm. and, like, go whole hog into what's not making you was, any money. He was miserable. He – it was probably not safe for him, you know. Rolling like, cigars or whatever he was cigars. doing. cigars. He had very little, see- very little sleep. He was probably delusional at this point. It was terrible. Also, I should mention to you, the cigar factory was horrifically dirty. And, oh. like, could have also been the cause of— Made him of, sick? Yeah. Yeah, all right. So leaving it could have made him it feel, might. feel a little that better. It might be the reason why, right. but it also might be because, thankfully, on one of John's <laughs> restless nights, <laughs> as the clock struck 12, an owl outside hooted seven times. His prayers were answered. That's why. There it is. Clearly, the owl was a sign— that his great-grandfather Jacob, who had been a powwower and the seventh son of a seventh son, was the man who hexed him. So since he couldn't kill or fight an already dead man, John decided to move away from his home, which was near Jacob's grave, and hopefully break the curse. And guess what? It worked? It worked. You left your job and your home. John's health began to improve, and his powwowing powers returned. Amazing! Whoa! Leave that filthy cigar factory. I don't know. I'm just saying. It might have something to do with it. You never know. (laughs) John got back to finding paid work doing odd jobs, and he even fell in love with a Miss Lily Bell Alloway. Ooh, that's a good name. I love that name. So good. 
a 17-year-old girl who was the daughter of the landlord at one of his rooming houses. The two were married shortly after. In 1918, they had their first child, Richard. Tragically, Richard died three days later. Oh, no. John and Lily tried again and were blessed with a second child in 1919, a daughter, Josephine. But tragedy struck again, and Josephine died at four or five years old. Oh, no. Lily was already pregnant with their third child, who was born in 1923, and they named him Thomas. The death of their first two children obviously broke their hearts, but John knew, deep down, he was hexed again. Yeah. Hex. Hex. So he wasted no time and began seeing other powwowers in the area. All agreed he had been hexed, but Andrew Lenhart was the one who told him that it was someone he knew. Oh, shit. Excellent. Except the first person John would suspect was his wife, Lily. Oh, no. Hasn't she been through enough? Lily didn't take this accusation lightly. Oh, no? <laughs> nope. Just a few years prior, in 1922, Lenart had a client named Sally Jane Hege, who was worried she had been hexed. Lenhart confirmed that she had been hexed by her husband and that he could help her. She hired Lenhart to come to her home to drive the witches out while she shot her husband, uh, who was asleep in the bed, Apparently, her intention was not to kill him, just to injure and weaken him so that the hex could be broken. However, when the treatment did not work and she began experiencing physical pain, she snapped and decided it was just best to kill him. Sally was sentenced to jail and soon after committed suicide. Oh, no. So Lily was like, fuck that. Yeah, not this guy go down is nuts. Yeah. She called her dad and lawyered up. Good girl. After consulting with lawyers, Lily was able to obtain a judge's order to have John institutionalized. And again, like, this part of the story, it just brings me back to the time period that we're in where the wife was able to lawyer up against her husband and, Mm -hmm. like, say something. So, like, we're not in the dark ages. This is a hundred years ago. (laughs) Although I bet, like, the difference between life where they lived and then, say— it's a city that's close Just by, like, like Philadelphia Pittsburgh or, or Pittsburgh. Yeah. Like, was night and day. It was, for sure. It, for sure. And, I mean, everyone did believe in this, but they also still did seek out doctors, and they were, okay. like, aware that— Because they're— Okay, so in this area, you had you had several powwowers, and you had some people like Nelson or what— um, the Blymeyer family, that, like, they didn't deal—they were faith healers. They didn't really deal with hexes or dark magic. Mm -hmm. But then there were some of these other ones that kind of went down this weird line where they were always like, this person hexed you and we need to kill them. Like, you need to do some some weird shit. So there were some that were a little bit um, more severe with their punishments, while others were like, I think you just need some sleep and here's some chamomile and lay it under your bed and have some in your tea. Get away from that cigar factory. Yeah, yeah. Take a fucking nap, just saying. And this one's like, I'm going to come to your house and exercise the demons and while you shoot your husband. Oh, no. That's <laughs> yeah. not right. So he was sent to the state hospital in Harrisburg where doctors diagnosed him as neurotic and having witch delusions. <laughs> <laughs> I formally declare that you have witch delusions. Yes, that's exactly how it's written. Perfect. While at the state hospital, Lily filed for divorce, and the judge granted it, and she got the F out of there. (laughs) Good. After 48 days, John decided he had enough, and he just casually walked out of the hospital without anyone noticing and walked 25 miles back to York. Good hospital. It's a great hospital. Just walk away. Well, we know about, like, asylums during that time. Yeah, they were not great. Yeah. They were overstaffed. It was terrible. Yeah, over, they were understaffed, over understaffed and overpopulated. and overpopulated. Yes, thank you. If John was going to find his hexer, he couldn't be wasting his time in a hospital. Ugh, get out of there. Luckily, he had no longer believed it was his ex-wife, but he was clearly paranoid about who it could be and confused about who would want to harm him. Having no money, John went back to working at the cigar factory in 1928. There, he met a 14-year-old boy named John Curry, and I'll call him Curry to help differentiate. Cool, cool. Curry was also suffering from misfortune and bad luck. He was born in the southern reaches of York County and lost his father at a young age. His mother remarried. 
her new alcoholic husband was verbally and physically abusive to both his wife and young Curry. Oh, no. Curry would later say his stepfather, quote, used to beat the hell out of me whenever he was drinking, and that was just near every day, end quote. Ugh. Curry was 13 when he decided to drop out of school and leave home. He later mentions that he wasn't welcomed home anymore, so that's why he left. Mm. Because he was bigger... Uh, pretty strong and quite handsome already for his age, he easily passed for someone that was at least 18. And this allowed him to enlist in the army. Imagine just a small boy just like, I'm just going to go to the army. I have this asshole dad. I have nowhere else to go. Hello, army. I'd like to join. (laughs) (laughs) His voice is cracking. They're like, that's fine. (laughs) Yeah, sure. He got through boot camp before his senior officer found out how old he was and immediately discharged him. Yeah. Desperate, he got a job at a cigar factory and befriended John Blymeyer. Not good for him, I take it. John was a great friend to Curry. Mm. He used his healing abilities to cure Cur- to cure Curry, who was feeling weak and couldn't sleep. He also told Curry about his hex and believed that Curry was hexed too. Listen, it great sounds friend. like the cigar factory is bad for everyone. Right? <laughs> Curry didn't even question John about the hexes. Curry's whole life had been miserable and he was only 14, so obviously a hex was to blame. Yeah. This poor kid. Curry knew of another family who had fallen on hard times. Milton and Alice Hess had been prosperous and successful until 1926, when a series of unfortunate events began at their farm. Crops failed, cows stopped producing milk, and they lost a large amount of money. Being from the same area as Curry and John, they believed that the family had also been hexed. Curry introduced them to John, who used the powwowing magic to heal their son Wilbert of some health issues, And uh, the family thanked God for bringing John into their lives. Once he told them about his hex, they all started to believe that maybe they were all hexed by the same person, too. Hex. This led John to seek out the River Rich of Marietta. This is all that I was thinking of. Yeah, (laughs) It's not a fantastic name. Yes. (laughs) The River Witch of Marietta. Yes. I want to be her when I grow up. She was a 90-something-year-old woman. Of course she was. Whose name was actually Emma Knob, but this is even better. Her, she, for some reason, went by Nellie Knoll. Yeah, of course. It's such a good name, Why wouldn't you be Emma Knob? (laughs) Nellie has been described as a scraggly old lady with gray hair and a hooked nose, which is just perfect. Obviously, that's what she looks like. (laughs) Nellie was a pro at powwowing. Though John didn't charge anyone for his services, Nellie, as well as many others, did. But Nellie has been practicing powwowing her whole life, and she was one of the best and knew a lot about hexes. So, during his first visit, Nellie was able to confirm that he was, in fact, hexed. Mm. And she's like a badass bitch here because she she charges for each session. smart. So, it's just little by little, she starts to, like, open the gate for him. So, she's like a chiropractor. She's like, you have to come back. Ten more times. Mm-hmm. I mean, chiropractors yep. are great. I love them. Yep. But some of them make you do that. <laughs> and then the next couple of times are changed a little bit in different settings. So in their second session, Nellie confirmed it was someone that John knew well. John thought and thought, but really couldn't think of anyone that would wish him harm. In their third session, Nellie confirmed that it was someone who lived in the country. <laughs> oh, okay. Yep. Way to narrow it down. In his fourth and fifth sessions, Nellie would be able to confirm that it was someone that John knew, like, his whole life. And finally, in her sixth session, she confirmed that his hexer was Nelson Raymeyer, the man at the beginning of our story. Why? What did he do? He's just tall and farming potatoes. I know. John was shocked. Nelson Raymeyer had given him a job at a young age and taught him powwowing and even healed him of a hex when he was five. Even more recently, one of John's odd jobs was helping pick potatoes for Nelson on his farm. Fucking potatoes. He was a weird dude, but he would have no reason to place a hex on John. Unless he was jealous. So John demanded proof from Nellie. And she had him stick out his hand and put a dollar bill in the palm of his hand. And when she pulled it away, a mirage of Nelson Raymeyer appeared in his hand. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> she was like, give me a dollar mm-hmm. and then we'll talk about Yeah, yeah, give me a dollar. <laughs> put this dollar in your hand. Now that's my dollar. Yeah. I see that also that guy's there, so get him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, okay. So this solidified things. All my divining is going to require money from now yeah. on. 
Holly, I've been telling you. Mm-hmm. You are worth something. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a dollar. Yeah. Nelson must have gotten jealous of John as a powwow practitioner. Ah, there you go. Jealous. So Nellie told John, in order to break the hex, he must get a lock of Nelson's hair and his book of spells, which was called The Long Lost Friend, and bury them six feet underground. The Long Lost Friend? Mm -hmm. So a little about this book, The Long Lost Friend. Oh, thank you. It is the most common and popularly used book by powwow doctors. It was published in 1820 by a German immigrant, John George Homan. Homan was a Pennsylvania Dutch healer. The book is a collection of home and folk remedies as well as spells and talismans. Everything in this book is meant to heal and protect and not to harm. This quote comes directly from the book. Whoever carries this book with him is safe from all his enemies, visible or invisible. And whoever has this book with him cannot die without the holy corpse of Jesus Christ, nor drowned in any water, nor burned up in any fire, nor can any unjust sentence be passed upon him. So help me. I need that book. No. Well, so in this book still exists. Some people still have it. And it's like a superstition of like, I, I need to carry this with me. Probably should put that on the shelf. Yep. Mm-hmm. All right, so now John finally knows who is hexing him. It only took him 12 years. Feeling desperate and scared, Curry and the Hesses were easily convinced that Nelson was to blame for their misfortunes as well. Poor Nelson. I feel like he's not. I know. And, yeah. Okay, so on November 25th, 1928, John Blymeyer made a plan to go to the Raymeyer's Hollow to get a lock of Nelson's hair and grab the book. He remembers Nelson being a bigger man, so he would need backup. John Curry jumped at the chance. Little 14-year-old John Curry oh, was come like, on, John I'll Curry. go. <laughs> I did boot camp. I went to Army. Yeah. <laughs> and since the hollow was a bit of a distance, John asked the Hesses if he could get a ride. The Hesses' oldest son, Clayton Hess, offered to drive. Clayton. You're going to love Clayton. Oh, no. No, you're going to love him. All right. <laughs> I'm worried for Clayton. All right, so let's check in with Nelson Raymeyer and see how he has been doing since we last spoke about him. How are the potatoes? <laughs> They're doing well. Good. Nelson is now 60 years old. He's healthy, still very tall, and he's and his farming duties are keeping him strong. He didn't shrink like a few inches or so. Nope. <laughs> only still got, tall. Only got taller. Holy cow. His wife, Alice, had moved out four years prior oh, with his no. two girls. Mm. She had inherited her family home, which was over the hill about a mile away, and decided she would be happier living separately from Nelson. Mm. The town gossip was that Nelson had stepped out on his marriage, but later Alice will report that she was unable to tolerate any longer Nelson's growing obsession with powwowing and its strange ceremonies, incantations, and spells, and the interruption created by strange people coming and going in her home. So she took her two daughters and moved out. That's valid. Yeah. I believe that. Yeah. Alice and Nelson stayed married and would visit each other, especially on laundry day. Oh. <laughs> yeah. They did not divorce. They just lived in separate No, she houses. just like, yeah. Okay. Yeah, but the romance died. Nelson, who was already introverted, now found himself staying home more often, only opening his door to guests who seeked faith healing and quietly working on his farm, sometimes with a helping hand from a neighbor. And though he was a very nice man, his shyness and somewhat reclusive lifestyle led the locals to build some tall tales. So he's like the weird guy in the old house on the hill. Yes. Okay. Depending on who you asked about Nelson, you would get a different story. Some saw him just as a nice older gentleman farmer. <laughs> a gentleman farmer. Yes. <laughs> others saw him as a spiritual healer with strange habits. Yeah. And then others, probably those who fear, feared his powwow magic, believed him to be hiding away in his tower dabbling in the black arts. Oh, no. There's, I read like another, um, an, another like write-up of this story, and like they described him as this like horrible mean man who like would summon Beelzebub and oh, all this no. stuff and that was they didn't write anything else it wasn't like this was just a thought but he really wasn't like this but, like that's how they wrote the story and I was like oh this is so wrong I've heard a couple I've heard this covered a couple mm -hmm. times and I've never heard that Ugh. yeah they were looking for an angle mm -hmm. that's terrible yeah but it's also where those stories were coming out more and especially right after what happens, happens. Okay. Some people tried to, like, drum it up more. Of course. Which I think is why that gets told 
But so I watched this documentary on Prime, okay. and it's about the the Hex trials and the Hex murders. And they, a lot of the Raymeyer family is still lives in this area. So it was actually the f- the only place that I got a very detailed history of the Raymeyer family. So of all the other versions that I've heard of this story, this is the only one so far that I know has like his actual life story in there because hmm. it's mostly just about John. Yeah. And they kind of tell it like it's uh, a little bit more of a spooky thing, which it's still, it's like this it's whole thing spooky. is pretty spooky. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Other powwowers would visit Nelson to discuss charms and spells and to help them when they reached their own limits. So he was kind of like, a, you know, they he would see other powwowers just and they'd just discuss things and he'd give them advice and stuff like that. Or so was the thought. But that's where that idea that he could maybe tap into something deeper and darker wasn't that far-fetched because people look to him for some advice sometimes. Okay. Charlie Miller, a neighbor of Nelson's, once told him, Nelson, that crazy stuff is dangerous and you ought to quit because it will get you nothing but trouble. Oh, I like him. (laughs) Charlie was not wrong. Charlie. (laughs) On November 26th, Clayton Hess drove John Blymeyer. This is where you're going to... Clayton's coming in. Yeah. Can't wait. So on November 26, Clayton Hess drove John Blymeyer and John Curry to the Raymeyer's Hollow. Once they pulled up to Alice's home, the two got out of the car and Clayton said, peace. I guess he was just <laughs> driving them there. I will drive you, but nothing else. That's it. Great. So John and Curry knocked on Alice's door. She opened up and recognized John from her childhood. He had lived down the street from her, but also knew him from helping Nelson on the farm throughout the years. She told the guys that Nelson and her were separated, but as far as she knew, he could be found at his house about a mile deeper into the hollow. Then she unwittingly confirmed John's suspicion about Nelson, referring to him as a devilish old witch. Oh, no, Alice! who she hoped would not come to see her anymore. She probably just thought she mm-hmm. was like, that ex-husband of mine yeah. or current husband with whom I am no longer associated. <laughs> yeah, right. And that is, so again, in this area, that is the differenti- the differentiation between. The difference? The difference. Yeah. <laughs> the differentiations. <laughs> I'm going to go with it. Keep going. <laughs> So a powwower is, again, a faith healer, and it's generally all good. Okay. A witch is somebody that would maybe use, like, they could tap into the devil's side of things. They're not, they're working with darker elements. Got it. So most of John Blymeyer and Nelson are technically powwowers, but some people are starting to believe that Nelson is probably a witch. Okay. Because a powwower wouldn't hex somebody, but a witch might. Or a witch might help someone hex someone else. Hex. Hex. John and Curry walked the mile to Nelson's home. Nelson invited them in. They sat in the small kitchen with a kerosene oil lamp burning on the table and a wood stove giving off a generous amount of heat. The group discussed powwowing and witchcraft long into the night. From later testimonies, it's understood that John discussed the, possi- the possible hexes that had been placed on himself and the Hess family with Nelson giving his thoughts and suggestions. Without ever thinking, John accused him of these hexes. Hmm. Nelson announced that he was tired and going to bed and told them that they were free to spend the night in the kitchen, which they did. So they just slept over. In the over. kitchen? Well, that's where the heat was. Okay. So you it's like a small, it is a small kitchen. house. Also, there was like barely anything in this home. Like he had like his bed and that was like, it was just, he was a very minimal man. All right. John and Curry would quietly search the house for the book, but came out empty. Mm. They decided against cutting a lock of Nelson's hair in fear that he would wake up and the two of them weren't strong enough to hold him into submission. He was a lot bigger than, yeah. than he remembered. So they decided they would need more muscle, and the Hess family decided their son, Wilbert, should go with them. Wilbert was 18 and was a pretty large and strong dude. On the evening of November 27, so just the next day, John... John Curry and Wilbert set out once more to Ray Myers Hollow. Clayton once again drove the group to the <laughs> hollow, dropping them off around the same area area he did before, and immediately drove away and headed home. So good. He's <laughs> so smart. That's what you do. <laughs> the group walked in the dark towards Nelson's home and armed with nothing more than twenty-five feet of rope. 
Nelson was already in bed when they arrived. John knocked on the door and Nelson appeared at the second floor bedroom window asking, Who's there? John replied, It's me, Blaya. <laughs> hey, it's me. Hey, it's just me. Get on thing. down here. John told Nelson he thinks he left his book there last night. Nelson didn't remember seeing a strange book, but let them in through the kitchen for them to look around. Nelson watched as they looked all over the place. Seeing as this might take a minute, he got some wood to place on the stove. And then here is where the story changes, depending on who tells it. Okay. Wilbert says this part lasted like an hour. Curry says it lasted just minutes. And Blymeyer said it was all instant. Okay. But essentially. When Nelson returned to the kitchen, all hell broke loose. Oh, no. With his back turned, John and the other two jumped Nelson's back and took him down. Beating him up, they tied his hands and feet together, and John tries to cut a lock in Nelson's hair. But Nelson fights his way out. Quickly, John Curry grabs a piece of wood, while John Blymeyer grabs a chair, and they begin beating Nelson again. Wilbur is using wood and his own body to keep Nelson down. With one blow to the head, Nelson's skull cracks open, and the group stops, assuming Nelson was dead. Oh. But he wasn't. Ooh. As Nelson takes a deep breath in, John freaks out and grabs a piece of the rope and strangles Nelson till this time he stops breathing. Oh, no. In some versions of the account, John had yelled at Nelson before his death to give him money, which Nelson does by handing him his, like, they call it a pocketbook. But yeah. Like, yeah. In other versions, John instructs Wilbur and Curry to look around the house for money before they leave. All of this was just to make it look like a robbery gone wrong. Mm-hmm. But their main plan was going to be to burn the house down and to burn Nelson in it. No evidence. Yeah. So this is what I thought was crazy, though. First, he had Curry pour water all over the house to try to remove all their fingerprints. Mm-mm. And then he took the kerosene lamp and poured that over Nelson's body. And then Curry had a match that he gave to John, and he lit it, and they watched his body go up in flames— and then that's when they skedaddled. So, hoping that all of the evidence would be gone anyway. In the damp house. In Got the it. damp house. The group left with less than $3 in change. That's some Elmer McCurdy <laughs> yeah. shit right there. <laughs> but no lock of hair or the long lost friend book. So they didn't get anything that they, they needed. They didn't get anything they wanted. No. They just killed him and then they were like, well, we're done. And here's the thing. Because if Nelson does have this book, he can't, he, like, oh, he can't, can't die, die right? there. Yeah. Oh, no. Oh, they're so dumb. Okay. <laughs> These are the dumbest hexanist criminals I've ever heard of. And John Blymeyer will say later that he couldn't get a piece of his hair because there's too much blood and he was having trouble and then the flames were getting too hot. So he was just like, I got to get out of here. And what he was hoping was, was that everything would just burn and fall into the ground and would all, with everything in there. Also, would, like. You started that fire. You could have gotten his hair before you started the fire. I know. So. I don't know. He's. Also, there's too much blood to cut a piece of hair is a sentence that. It was just that, too much blood. That doesn't make any sense. I don't want to <laughs> touch it. It was gross. It was so icky. It was just slippery. It kept slipping out of my hands. Look. <laughs> As they ran away from the house, back into the dark of night, they turned back to see the house and watched the flames from within, but were spooked as they saw a spectral form of mm. Raymeyer moving grotesquely about against the background of the flames in an erupting column of smoke. I would have loved it if it was really him, like, I'm not dead yet! <laughs> it might have been. Maybe it was. Been. It mean, might have been. They don't seem very strong or smart, so they could have just strangled him and been like, he's unconscious, now he's dead, yes. and then he wasn't dead. So if they did actually see him, okay. if this is if that is a true account and yeah. they actually saw him, one of the logical reasonings would be that he wasn't, you know, they strangled him, but he might not, he might have come back to. He might have just passed out. Yeah, he yeah. might have just passed out. And then obviously on fire is freaking out. He's getting up because he's on fucking and fire. Is like, and is like, yeah, waving around. And it's a small house, so he wouldn't have had to move too far. They would have just seen him out that yeah, window. Yeah, that makes perfect I sense. I think the kitchen was like where they would, on the side it that they were It takes way longer to strangle someone to death than people realize, especially people like this. Yes. Yeah, so that's like the logical assumption. If, of course. Yeah. Strangely, the crime went undiscovered for two days. Mm -hmm. uh, on Thanksgiving Day, one of Nelson's neighbors, David 
Vanover was concerned when he could hear Nelson's livestock making lots of noise. He headed up to the farm, and it seemed like the animals had not been fed in days, and his mail had not been grabbed. David and another neighbor, Oscar, went up to the house to check on Nelson. As they got closer to the home, they started to smell burnt wood and some other foul odor. And this would seem weird to David and Oscar, because as they approached the house, nothing seemed wrong. It was just quiet. So it didn't look like a burnt-down house? Nope. Because it was all wet. The home that had been lit on fire the night before looked untouched from the front, but the smell was getting stronger as they got closer to the home. They knocked on the door, but didn't get an answer. David looked through the kitchen window, and that's where he saw Nelson's body lying on the floor, face down, his head resting on the back of a kindling wood and a piece of rope around his neck. They broke in and saw wood and broken pieces of chairs scattered across the kitchen. The room is splattered with blood, the walls are singed, and the wood floor below Nelson's body had been burnt through. The only reason Nelson had not fallen through the floor was because his body laid over a beam that was reinforced by a potato bucket. Oh, potatoes coming back around. Yeah. So David and Oscar call the damn cops. Good for them. The cops head to Alice Raymeyer's home to tell her about her husband. Alice tells the police that John Blymeyer and John Curry visited her the other day. And she's like, also, I definitely didn't say some real crazy shit to them. Yeah. So if they say that, <laughs> that never happened. That never happened. <laughs> so the police brought them in and they happily confessed to the murder. Just no. happily, they were like, oh, yeah, yeah we, we killed him. Yeah. yeah. They even told the police that Wilbert Hess was also involved. Oh. So that was like, great. Yeah. John... And John Curry laid out the events and explained all about the hex and how killing Nelson wasn't the intention. But either way, now that he was dead, the hex is gone and the town is safe. And the police were like, what the fuck? Poor Clayton's probably like, uh, you better not have fucking told them I was driving I just, that car. I, was I ran dropping away. off my brother's friends. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to be a part yeah. of it. I left. Yeah. How dare you? The police and lawyers tried to keep the notion of witchcraft and hexing out of the media, but it wasn't long before details of the story got out in newspapers across the country were covering the York witchcraft murder. Ooh. During the trials, everything was laid out. All three men told their entire story. They even told it with pride, Ew. feeling that they that their luck had actually turned around and that they saved the town from a hexer. So, like, you're welcome. Oh, no. So also, um, by the time they went to the trial, Nelson had been buried. And so in John Blymeyer's head, his hair, and he probably would have been buried with his book. He thinks that that's why. Like he's like, well, he's buried six feet under. Right, and nobody could, he couldn't find this book. No one saw this book. No one said he was buried with this book. Mm -mm. He just assumed that yeah. that happened. And there's cool. other accounts. So... This what this is hard because in other accounts where I don't know if they're using it as like us just, you know, to tell a story, but they do say that in the house John is like, "Where is your long lost friend? Like where is where's this book?" And Nelson's like, "I don't know. I don't have it. Like it's not here." blah blah blah. So that there was like a struggle and he was asking for that book. So I don't know if that had happened or mm -hmm. if Nelson was trying to be coy and then like just all hell broke loose real fast. So I don't even know that he ever had the book too. Hmm. But it wouldn't have been weird. It was a very popular book. And say, it was a fine book. Like, you would have, so a powwower would always have with them this, a long lost friend book and the Bible. Like it was like complimentary. So this, but if this was like a big tool of his trade, he would have had it. He probably would have had it. But that's why I don't know. Um, so either he was saying that he didn't have it or he was yelling back, like saying, like, get out of my house. I don't like, want to give you my book. I don't want to give you my book. That's my things. I didn't hex nobody. So the courts didn't see it this way. They they did not think that these men no, did anything good. They saw them as murderers. Crazy. Yeah. And on January 14th, 1929, the three men were sentenced to prison. John Curry, who again was only 14, Ugh. was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. He would begin to realize that they probably killed an innocent man. Yeah, they sure did. Wilbert Hess, who was 18, firmly believes his family was hexed. His intention was never to kill Nelson, just to break the curse, which they felt like they had. There was an instant sense of calm in the air. Yeah, because somebody was dead, so they're not fighting mm -hmm. against you anymore. And his, um, the Hess family strongly believed in 
like power, power magic and hexes. And Got it. this was like something they were dealing with for a long time. And Wilbur had been sick and then was feeling better once he like saw this faith healer. And so he just was, he was in it. And, Got his, it. and his mom was very much just like, like, I wish that, that God didn't send John Blymeyer, but I'm glad that you're healed. Oh, <laughs> Remember no. you're a good Christian. Oh God. <laughs> yeah. Mom. She wrote like a nice letter to him, but it was like, she still firmly believed, like, that there was a hex and that things were getting better. No. Wilbert had a really good lawyer. Um, so the courts were actually really nice, and they did find, like, good lawyers for, for these guys. Um, but I think, actually, this lawyer worked with the Hess family before, so he actually just worked on Wilbert's case, which is why he his sentence only— his sentence got reduced to 10 to 20 years, oh. whereas John Curry didn't really have— a lawyer right. with him. He was supposed to, but he didn't. So he just got life. But that was a little tough because the judge was like, I know you're only 14. You're a child. Yeah, but this is bad. <laughs> you did a bad thing, so yeah. bye forever. Yeah. John Blymeyer was happy to tell the court how he saved the town. His lawyer okay. tried to plead an insanity case. Well, obviously. <laughs> yeah. But the judge decided to sentence John to life in prison for first-degree murder. After John received his sentencing... He turned to his lawyer and said, Mr. Cohen, the witch is dead. I can eat and sleep in peace now. It's interesting because now insanity might be like pretty valid for them because they honestly did not believe they had done anything wrong. This reminds me of the Slenderman case. Slenderman. Yeah, Slenderman. <laughs> yes. But yeah. it reminds me a lot of that. Yeah, you know? they honestly they were did all not under, think they had done anything yeah. wrong. Mm -hmm. And this was their culture. Interesting. In 1934... Curry and Wilbur were paroled. Okay. Both the men lived quiet lives. Curry joined the military, finally. Oh. He served in World War II. All right. And became a talented artist. You can buy his works today. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. um, I think there was somebody maybe in the prison that was like, why don't you get into this and, like, de-stress? Why don't you do smart? Yeah. Like a little painting. <laughs> yeah. You're a child. You're an actual child. Those who met him said he was kind and a gentle man. And Curry died in 1962. John Blymeyer petitioned for parole several times but was denied until 1953 at the age of 56. John was granted parole and returned to York, PA, and got a job as a janitor. He bought a small home with the money he saved in prison and lived a long, quiet life, thankful the hex was broken. Ugh. Yeah. He didn't die that long ago. I think in like 87 or something. You were weird. It was like in his 90s. Ugh. Yeah. So that's um, Woo. that's the hex house murders, the hex, hex trials, hex hollow, hex. hex. <laughs> <laughs> that's my takeaway. <laughs> Quietly whisper hex. <laughs> See what happens. Spooky. <laughs> okay, so back to the house and the fire. Okay. So we talked about the one logical reasoning that he may have been like running right. around if if they did actually see his body. The other thing is that uh, the reason why the fire went out, it wasn't because of the water. Because they didn't okay. use like a crazy ton amount of oh, water. Oh, all right. So again, if he was just passed out and then woke up, yeah, um, he could have fallen to like where he fell on the floor. Or if he did die there and this is where his body was laying, the fact that he was laying on this beam part that helped keep him from falling through the floor— his bladder, so again, remember, lots of pee in the story. Oh, man. His bladder would have been um, ruptured, and then that fluid would have leaked down. So as the floor— as He the floor, put out the fire with his pee. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, they, oh, so what they no. believe is, is that because where the fire was around his body, it broke through the floor, and then the fire start was actually would have, like, gone big from the basement and like gone up. But because of the fluid coming from his bladder, he actually put it out. Ew. Yeah. Crazy. I hate that so much. But really, the most logical reason... Hex. ...is that the ancient mysteries Ray Meyer had invoked when he powwowed had protected his corpse from burning. Obviously. Yeah. Obviously, the answer. Mm -hmm. So, is that area full of ghosts now? Do people like... Yes. They do. People do feel that. Um, the So, the grandson of Ray Meyer, mm -hmm. he lived in the house for a while. Um, and oh, then the he house rented, is still there? The house is still there, yeah. <gasps> mm-hmm. Can we go to it? We can. Because, oh so, for a while, um, I think they fixed it up a little bit. What they did do, though, was um, 
they did put this glass piece over that floor so you can actually Ooh, see where it okay. is, but it's all constructed and safe to walk around. And they did used to rent the house out, but since with the glass fin- over it, yeah, it was like, but it was like safe, you know, like you can like but see. But still, you're not gonna be like living in that house, like, no. well, here's unless where they, a guy burnt they, to death. Well, but I don't know. It's just that they rented it. I don't know if it was like to people like us that wanted to go or and like rent people there. who ran it as a museum or something. Right? Yeah, I don't know. Um, but he, they stopped doing that um, in 2000, and he decided to turn it into kind of a kind of a museum. So he brought back everything, uh, like how it would have been set when his cool. grandfather lived there. And you can do little tours. It's cute. It's like a hayride in the town. And they show you um, the other family's houses and then what path go. they would have gone on. And, yeah, it's just like, yeah, it looked interesting because it's his actual family all still living in the hollow. Oh, my God, I want to go. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. I bet they have crazy ghost stories, too. They do, yeah. I didn't mention that. That's all right. I'm going to see the um, the witch of the River Rich of Marietta. Oh, yeah. I like her. That's mm-hmm. great. Maybe we can find um, some of the ghost stories and read them in postmortem. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, if you're a patron, you'll get to hear them. Mm-hmm. If you're not, get on that. <laughs> that was good. Yeah. Spooky times. Hex and people, farm potatoes. It had it all. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Ran the gamut. And will you have to toast? Oh, yeah. Toast? Toast. There you go. And toast. <laughs> and toast. Um, I kind of want to toast poor Nelson. I don't think he was yeah, a bad guy. Same. I think he was just like an old weird mystic and they, they killed him for no reason. So cheers to, to Nelson. Nelson. Oh, to our friend Clayton. <gasps> Clayton. <laughs> just got the fuck out of there. Mm-hmm. Um... To Lily Bell Alloway, who lost her two kids and and just had a real great name. Yeah. All right. That that was John Blymeyer's wife. Oh, oh, man. (laughs) She went through it. She did. She really did. Also, let's have a toast to our little pod dog. Mm, Pod dog. So cheers to Ziggy. He was super um, happy to be in all your lives and eat popcorn mm-hmm. during campfire stories. <laughs> breathe in the microphone. <laughs> and to breathe ever so softly into the microphone while we were trying to record. Thank you guys for letting him be a part of this. I um, It was really special. So cheers, pot dog. Cheers. Do we have anyone else today? We do. Oh. Uh, we have three patrons. Three. Three is my lucky number. Yes. It's a great day. Banner day. All right. First up. You may know her as the River Witch of Nowakian, Marta Nowak. (laughs) (laughs) Marta, we all want to be a River Witch. The River Witch. So this is like really high praise. Mm -hmm. Cheers. (laughs) Next, we have the cutest monster who loves to steal your socks from the dryer, Alex M. Oh, Alex M. (laughs) Is that where all my socks went? That's where they go. Cheers to Alex. (laughs) Lastly, the oldest, devilish witch herself, Angelique Wallace. Oh, Angelique. I'll call her timeless. Timeless, yeah. <laughs> we all we're all that way. Cheers, Angelique. Ooh, and Ooh, one more. Yes. So yesterday was John's birthday. <gasps> our editor. Yes. Happy birthday, Happy my husband. Birthday. The editor. Um, he makes our videos. He composes all our music. All the music. Yeah. So guys, like, yeah. drop him some happy birthday wishes on all the socials. He'll see him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or Leslie will show him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so cheers and happy birthday, John. Happy birthday. And if someone thought that we placed a hex on them. Hex. We, we would, would be, be dead. dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. I just grew a potato. Hex.